0: Shalom Aleichem, welcome to The Schmooze. I'm Lisa Newman and today I am visiting with Sandy Fox. Sandy is the founder and producer of ViberTech, a feminist podcast in Yiddish for the Yiddish speaking and Yiddish Curious. She's also a doctoral candidate in American Jewish history at New York University, studying performance, language, and the production of authentic Jewishness in post-war Jewish summer camps. Welcome Sandy.
1: Thanks, it's great to be here. Uh,
0: well, we're very excited. Every, all of our fellows came back from AJS, and we're talking all about you. Um, <laughs> so nice.
1: I was sick at AJS, so it's nice that I made an impression. <laughs> yes,
0: <laughs> a, a very good one. Um, Perfect. So I gather your work on your dissertation, which you're still in the midst of, correct? Mm-hmm. Is, yep. um, and I've got the title here, We're Real Jews. Producing authentic Jews in post war American Jewish camps, 1945 to 1979. So, curious, tell me about the study.
1: Um, yeah, so uh, the study basically evolved, it was a pretty long term evolution. Um, I actually started in grad school in Israel studies, and then Yiddish brought me closer to American Jewish history. Um, And when I got into American Jewish history, um, one kind of steady thread throughout all of my studies, even as an undergrad, uh, has been an interest in youth and children's history. Um, And I had done some work on youth movements, on Zionist youth movements, on the scouting movement. um, And then I don't exactly know how camps just became the obvious place to go. I mean, first of all, I did go to a camp. um, So I guess, you know, I have those years of experience to know that there's something really significant going on in Jewish summer camps and has been going on, um, since the early 20th. Um, so I don't know exactly what happened the day that I realized or the, you know, the time that I realized that I wanted to study camps. But, uh, since then it's been, again, it's sort of an evolution. You know, you have an idea, but you have to hone in on what exactly you want to talk about. Um, and I'm looking at, sort of the most ideological of Jewish summer camps. So Zionist summer camps, Yiddishist or Yiddish-centered summer camps, um, and denominational summer camps. Uh, So my study does not really look at the private camps. um, And there are a lot of communal camps, but that's a whole other world, and there's a lot, a lot of them. So it focuses on those camps, and it looks at the ways in which um, everyday life at camp is a sort of performance where you're simulating Jews from other times and places, and your uh, children are taught to simulate or role-play different ideas of what real Jews are or should be. Um, And educators in the post-war period rarely really pinpointed exactly what they meant by real or authentic Jews, but you have this moment in which, um, you know, after the Holocaust, the, the weight of Jewish culture is on the shoulders of American Jewry, and at the same time, American Jews are... Especially institutional leaders are increasingly panicked about um, how do you keep America's, how do you keep Jewish culture real and authentic uh, in the midst of suburbanization and, uh, and upward mobility and affluence? Um, so these camps sort of become training grounds for different versions of the authentic, um, which really come to light. You know, what do they mean by authentic? Only through really analyzing what day-to-day life of a camp was like. Um, so really every hour of the schedule reflects a broader ideology and that's what the dissertation is about. Focuses on a couple of those parts of life at camp um, more focusedly, but that's the broader idea.
0: And these were camps in the United States as well as abroad or
1: Only only United States.
0: Okay. And did you yeah. did you go to a camp that had this sort of ideology or premise?
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. I went to a Zionist summer camp um, from age nine and worked there until age 22, more or less. Um, So I I definitely, I actually, it's funny, I don't think about my experience that often while writing this. One would think that I would, but what I guess I got from my camp experience that I I do see in the dissertation is that I take really, really seriously what, what, what happens at summer camps I take seriously what children thought and felt and said about it. Um, So a lot of camp histories up to up till now, not that there are so many of them, but what you've got is, you know, histories of what educators um, thought and said about about American Jewry, about children. Um, You don't really get a perspective of what was it actually like to be there and and how is that significant and not just in an alumni survey, you know, Mm -hmm. philanthropic, philanthropic survey sort of way. But actually, to understand what it was like then, kind of an emotional history um, as well that doesn't it's not really about how did they turn out afterward, which is what a lot of people are concerned with. I'm not really that concerned with because I'm a historian. Um, so I definitely think that my time at cancer me in terms of just taking this topic really seriously, um, while you know some you know, some people might think, you know, summer camp's not a serious topic. There are still historians out there, you know, that if it's not about a war or it's not about politics, then, you know, how is that important? It's kind of crazy because the social history turn was so long ago at this point, but um, people still have to really prove that the history of children uh, and youth is important, And um, but it's always been really obvious to me.
0: Um, It is, actually. There's a conference going on upstairs right now, dealing with children um, as a topic. Um, Yeah. So the thing that I'm curious about is, you know, you talk about education being part of this summer camp construct, for lack of a better word. Um, And I think about my Jewish camp experience, and it wasn't something that I was necessarily aware of, but did it play a role in all Jewish camps, do you think? Sorry, what, 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 did I, what play a role? Um, did education. You, law you, law you, law you talked about education, and you talked about um, how this was an, an aspect of the construct of these camps, whether they, you, know, you went to a Zionist camp, um, and an educator's role was part of the programming at the camp, Mm-hmm. Okay. Is that true, and, and was that true for all Jewish camps, and it, was it something that was in the background or not necessarily part of all camp experiences?
1: Every camp had a different approach to it, mm-hmm. and not all camps were education-driven. Actually, educational Jewish camping, although it began before the post-war period in kind of small ways, and Zionist camps and leadership camps also existed then, it kind of took off or said to have taken off Uh, after the war, even though there were camps, um, you know, starting from, I mean, there were some even earlier, but mainly like the 1920s. Um, So all different types of camps had different approaches to education. And at some camps, education was more prominent than at others. Uh, There definitely are a whole slew of Jewish camps, also many of them still existing today, that are not super education-driven. You know, if they're Jewish, it might mean that they have everyone wear white on Friday night, and you know they light the candles, and that's kind of it with Jewish education, or they might sing some Hebrew songs, and then there are camps where it's a lot more heavy-handed. Um, so to answer your question, it basically runs the gamut, but that there's this really, really strong sector of Jewish educational camping that in the post-war period, educators and philanthropists and even parents, um, rabbis, they start to look at camps, and they say, wow, this seems to be kind of our saving grace because... You can send a kid away to this immersive, totalizing atmosphere where they can learn to be, quote-unquote, real Jews. We're not managing to do that in this new Jewish life of the suburbs. Um, yeah.
0: And how do they define, if I may, real Jews? That's the whole thing, right? They,
1: they rarely pinpoint through their words what they mean by that. So I have to go in and I have to look at the daily, the daily life of camp um, and try to figure out you know, how are they trying to mold campers according to these ideals, and therefore I can figure out what that ideal was. So in the case of a Zionist camp, let's say, the ideal would be to have children emulate um, towards becoming Jews that are like the Holocene, the pioneers of the um, Yishuv and later Israel. Uh, you know, they have all these programs and still do to some extent of, you know, The Kibbutz program where you live in tents and you cook your own food and you do labor. All these camps, a lot of these camps had uh, big elements of the day that were devoted to labor. Um, And, like, how different is that than, you know, their lives in the suburbs where they probably didn't do labor um, at home or, you know, they went to school. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at a Yiddish summer camp, there were a lot of examples of kind of trying to teach children how to emulate the ethos of of um yiddish speaking writers and intellectuals uh communists socialists depending on the camp um and also the labor movement uh they were camps that were Bundist, and they and they they raised kids to become future bundists um the Yiddishist camps are actually a little bit less straightforward uh than the zionist ones but there's this element of emulating life or mimicking life um in the urban ghettos on lower east side let's say or even in the shuttles of eastern europe mm-hmm. um that's, those are two examples, two primary examples.
0: Has it been hard to find the information?
1: Oh no! For me, it's an issue of cutting down sources. Ah. At first, I thought there wasn't enough.
0: That
1: mm-hmm. um, I was wrong. There's a lot. Um, what's weird about it though is you know I'll get, I'll get a slice of what the camp produced. You know, um, in terms of paper, and I know that that's you know, who knows? It's so small. Maybe one one hundredth of the amount of paper they actually produced from the time that I was studying, that, that the, the time I'm studying. Um, so that's what's a little weird about it, but you can draw a lot from the, the pieces that are left. Um, a lot, a lot.
0: I guess I have to ask you the question then, why did you cut it off at 1979? Is there something?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, there is something about that. I think that the face of Jewish summer camping changed in the late 70s, early 80s. The 79, I might end up pushing that to 80 in the final draft. But basically, the Yiddishist summer camps start to close, um, which has a lot to do with the generations of Yiddish speakers and the ages of their children, but it also has to do with um, different things, like the insurance industry comes into play and running camps becomes extremely expensive. Uh, Also, what hurts the Zionist camps is that... Travel to Israel becomes cheaper, so the whole notion of kind of mimicking um, this other place, mimicking Israel, becomes less—it still exists, actually, but it becomes less important because mm-hmm. the kids are going to go there. And a lot of camps built in travel programs for one summer, you know, in the teenage years. Um, so that causes all sorts of shifts to happen. Like the shift camps close, the Zionist camps change a little bit, the focus on Hebrew goes down, um, so that's
0: basically the the reason why I cut it off then. Ah, so in addition to this, you are, you're also very immersed in the world of Yiddish, um, and I know you've written recently in, in Geveb, um about the role of Yiddish in relationships. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could share a bit about your thinking on that and what got you into that. I know that these both areas of your study seem to find their way back and forth between one another, but I'm curious how you define or how you've looked at this Yiddish in relationships.
1: Yes, I wrote that actually a while ago, but I think that actually it's also connected to the podcast I'm working on in a way. When I entered the Yiddish world, I noticed a lot, a lot of people in the Yiddish world either were dating or aimed to date other people who spoke Yiddish. Um, and I really wanted to get to the heart of what was that about and um, how does having this, this language that you want to speak with your partner affect the relationship? What if one person has more fluent Yiddish than the other? Um, what if one person wants to speak Yiddish uh, more often than the other? So I did a survey and I looked, at, uh, I looked at a bunch of, I asked a bunch of people who spoke Yiddish to talk about how Yiddish has played into their romantic lives. Um, and what I found was it actually plays a pretty substantial role in the lives of many. I mean, I'm not a statistician or a sociologist, so that, this was more kind of for fun, I have to say. This was for the Inzibed blog. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found was, yeah, it plays this tremendous role. And it does actually link over to the camp project because I think one thing that people often remember from the camp experiences and talk about is the romance, the romance and the sexual nature of um, Jewish camps, what happens there, <laughs> you know, when the lights right. go out. So there is this kind of connection. Um, yeah, so that's basically what that was about. Um, and I think it was the the survey was also partly driven by something I had noticed, which is that in a lot of cases um, among younger Yiddishists, the people who spoke Yiddish more fluently, largely because they had been involved in Yiddish more for a longer amount of time, uh, were men. And that, you know, in heterosexual relationships, how does that play out if your male partner speaks Yiddish better than you do or is more ideologically yiddish than you are and wants to speak it more often? Um, And that connects the podcast in the sense that the same reason, for a similar reason, I wanted to create Vibratage to to make a space for Yiddish-speaking women and genderqueer or trans folks to have their voices heard in what I felt was a pretty male-dominated field, not a judgment on it. I didn't I didn't feel there was, you know, misogyny in that, but just fact as a fact it was it felt that there were a lot of men running the show.
0: Is there a connection between Yiddish and feminism?
1: Um for me or just in general?
0: I guess for you personally or you know, what are what are you learning as you navigate all of this?
1: I think that um, what's interesting is that Yiddishism, much like Zionism, um had a lot to do with reclaiming Jewish masculinity. So we, a lot of people know about the sort of new Jew, muscular Judaism ideal that came out of Zionism, but the truth is that that also has its little role in Yiddishism in the sense that the Yiddishist movement was all about kind of lifting Yiddish up from being considered um, a women's language, Mama Lushen. uh The Yiddish literature was considered, you know, written for, I think one quote I've seen is for, for women and not dumb people, but simple people or something like like that. So Yiddishism was about lifting it out from that and and raising it to a language of a high culture, and part of that was standardizing it. Um, So I do think that for me, by being a Yiddishist who's a feminist, I try to sort of bring back (laughs) the the female aspect and actually reclaim it.
0: So you're doing... um a lot of different projects, uh, taking you in a lot of different directions. I, you know, A dissertation is not a simple undertaking. You've got yeah. a podcast. Um, you mentioned the blog post in Um, What else are you, if I may, working on, and where do you see this all taking you?
1: Um, good question. I don't know if I'm working on anything else. The podcast and the dissertation is, like, basically as much <laughs> as I want to take on. I mean, I'm working on being, you know— healthy and having some sort of level of a life but um yeah i mean i did teach yiddish for the first time i was in israel for quite a few months i taught yiddish um a yiddish figure course that was really fun i i think i mean i want to do the academic track uh if if that's possible um but i've always been also interested in building community and um you know, I have a lot of different interests. So it would be very cool to have a situation in which I get to teach and do research, but also, you know, maybe do something like in the digital humanities that has to do with podcasting. But in a lot of ways, you know, these projects connect intellectually or they connect to my personality, but I I keep them rather separate. I even kind of use different names <laughs> <laughs> to, to identify myself, you know, like Stanford Fox is the academic and then there's both who does the podcast. And, uh, you know, I'm the same person, but I, I don't really aim to it, you know, I don't aim to professionalize vibrate. Um I think that in the Jewish world, there's always a lot of temptation to apply for funding or to become part of another organization. And in a lot of ways, that would be beneficial. But in another way, because it's not my main thing, because I'm mainly doing my dissertation, I have to, you know, I have to balance. So, um, I'm not trying to professionalize it. That's really kind of a hobby and a, a, like a passion project for me. And Um, It's been great, and it was especially great because I was was living in Israel pretty detached from the Yiddish world, and it kept me connected to what's going on here in New York, and also all around the world. Now I am in touch with Yiddishists in Poland and Russia and Canada and Sweden. You know, I get emails from all over the world, so that's so cool. Um, So I'm really happy I did it.
0: Did you grow up in a Yiddish-speaking home?
1: No, no. I learned Yiddish about uh, four years ago almost started learning Yiddish. It's Uh been a a journey. Um, And I didn't expect to really fall in love with the language. I thought I was going to just kind of learn enough to take my department's language exam. But uh, I was at Yiddish Farm, and just something really clicked for me. The language just felt really natural coming out of my mouth. And um, I speak Hebrew, but I can't say that that's ever been the case for me with Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Um, It always feels foreign. um, And Yiddish just didn't. It just made sense. And the Yiddish community also felt immediately like home. So I started only a couple of years ago, but it's really become a huge part of who I am.
0: That's great. And you yeah. chose to do a podcast in Yiddish, which is commendable.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's really it's really fun to be on podcasts in English. I'm so articulate. It's so easy. I mean, not to be like, I'm so articulate. I just mean, when you're used to speaking on a microphone in your third language, which is hard, then when you speak English, it's a pleasure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So how can our listeners find your podcast?
1: Uh, yeah, you can find ViberTight on iTunes or on Stitcher, um, and also you can you can subscribe with any sort of podcatcher. The RSS feed is on our website. Uh, you can also listen on the website. So the website is www.vibratish.com. That's V-A-B. Sorry, V-A-Y-B-E-R-T-A-Y-T-S-H dot um, and there you can also download it, listen to it on your um, on your computer. Great.
0: And when you finish your dissertation, you'll share it with us?
1: Yeah, I hope to share it. I hope it's a book one day and I can share it with the world. And, you know, it'll be an academic book, but I think a lot of people who went to summer camps are eager to, uh, to read about the experience from this perspective. So I'm, I'm very excited to share it with the world.
0: Yeah, I think it's a big part of many of our lives that we're yeah. all trying to puzzle through how, yeah, <laughs> how, I'm it, how it imprinted. Um, well, thanks oh, yeah. so much for joining me. Um, thanks. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe,
0: visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org. This episode is produced by me, Alexis Owen. And until next time, be well and be healthy.